And it's just a snapshot in church history. I mean, can you imagine singing that song in Connecticut in 2018? What are we, dinosaurs? Roar! Uh, yeah, um, but you know, church uh, history is 2,000 years old. And a 100-year-old song is uh, really new, <laughs> brand new. We're studying the mission we've been given by God. You could call this study the Christian way of life, God's plan for your life. We could call it a lot of things. Tonight we're studying and on mission number four, our need for guidance, our need for guidance. And I want to um, open tonight with the words of the Lord Jesus Christ about his plan for our lives. Jesus came up in Matthew 28 and spoke to the disciples saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations by baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and by teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How did we miss it? How is it possible that the clear point of the send-off in Behold the King in the Gospel of Matthew is binding on those who would be disciples of Christ following the pattern of his apostles? Well, um, I want you to get excited about the mission that God has for you. Because once you know in general what we're supposed to be about, now you can start talking about how you specifically impact that mission. What's my role in this mission? And then we stop thinking about ourselves and what we're going to do with our time uh, for ourselves. And we start thinking in terms of God's objectives. Let's take a moment for silent prayer and we'll uh, open tonight in Ephesians chapter 5. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you and praise you for making us in your image, for a relationship with you in which we could participate in your projects and your objectives. Father, we're not here just to obey your commands. You've given us commands so we know how to love you. Father, we want to do that as we learn of you tonight. Help us love you in a mature way as faithful children who are growing up into the character of Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you please turn your Bible this evening to Ephesians chapter 5. We've never worked all the way through Ephesians together, verse by verse. In a way, I'd kind of like to start a six-hour little marathon with you and just do a quick survey of Ephesians. Six chapters, six hours. We could do it. A little fire hose. and That's not the objective tonight, but I sure would enjoy it. And in verse 15, the Apostle Paul says, therefore, based on everything that has preceded, and that's how Ephesians is, it's all, uh, every little therefore is a chain linking you to the, to the whole, a link in the chain. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, 
because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Three little verses that have a couple of really important commands. The first is to be careful, and the second is to know, to understand God's will. And uh, I think that if our life was supposed to be a mystery of intuition, to really feel if we knew what God's will was in a specific kind of question, I feel like this would be unfair that the Apostle Paul issues such a command to know, to understand what the will of the Lord is. And part of my objective in On Mission is to show that that's not at all how we live as believers. We're not supposed to be casting about in the dark. We're not thrown by every wind of doctrine that blows or every wave of television evangelism that you hear or every idea that comes out of some religious outlet. We're supposed to know the will of God. And so uh, let's review a little bit in that interest. The first question we ask in On Mission is, what are we doing here? And, I, and the, what we mean is, why are we here on, on earth in time, in the time which, why did God make us and what are we here for? What are, what are you doing here? That's the question. I'm, t- I'm talking to you. <laughs> you. What are, what are you doing here? And uh, we said, well, um, this is the question of the mission. Has God answered that question? And yeah, he has very clearly answered the question. The second question the second piece was the mission despite the storm. And uh, I hadn't initially planned to do this, but we needed to do this as I studied. And that's kind of how it goes. I make a plan and then I adjust the plan as the study progresses. And the mission addresses the problems that you face in life. And what, what, what I'm trying to say in the mission despite the storm is it's very simple. It is that your life is full of problems, but your life is not about your problems. You're not going to go through this thing and say, oh, I was a tough mutter or a Spartan race and I just got, got through and I finished. No, you have an actual set of objectives that God has set up for you that he tells you about in the Bible. He wants you to be part of his enterprise and he's very specifically outlined it. And it is not about real estate. It is not about career choices. These are all secondary, subsidiary, subservient ideas to the big picture mission. And I'll give you the secret. It's all these people around us. The mission are all these dying and dead people who don't know Christ and are going to face the great white throne judgment and be cast into the lake of fire. This is the mission. And the other things are part of how we live our lives, orienting on the mission. So the problems, we have to talk about the problems. And so we talked about the storm that Jesus provided for the disciples so that they could learn to trust him. We talked about last week, another surprise, as I, as I studied this out and worked on this, the surprise for me was that we, we have all of our problems focused on time, and we looked at the problems of time. In fact, we solved all the problems of time. There's two big ones, having too little and having too much. Remember that? Too much time, too little time. And we said that the solution to all the problems of time and the biggest problems in our lives is to adopt God's perspective about them. If you think about God's way of dealing with life, history, your problems, when you remember that we deal with a sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, righteous, loving God, and you look at the problem you're facing in time from his perspective, you begin to orient properly and you're stabilized. That's encouragement from 2 Corinthians 1, and then you can actually manage the pressure and help others. All right, we said we're going to solve the problems of time, and I want to go ahead and review this with you. 
This slide isn't animated properly, but that's okay. We said the first problem of time is that there's not enough time. I worry about failure because I don't have enough time. We said the problem with, with feeling this way about time, I've got deadlines in my life, do you? I've got a time crunch here and there. Do you have time crunches? We all do. It's part of life. It's how life works. What do you do about the problem of not enough time? Well, first is perspective. I don't have enough time. Who says I don't have enough time? Who's in charge of whether I have enough time? And we said, tongue-in-cheek, God is the real time Lord, and used an illustration from pop culture of time. And then I introduced the rationale of sufficient resources. Everyone can remember that one really easily. The rationale of sufficient resources is very simple. God is good. He's not unfair. He's not teasing you. He says, I want you to do the following things. And here it is spelled out clearly in the Bible. If he wants you to do it, he provides the resources for you to do it because he's good and righteous and loving. So if God wants you to sweep the floor, you're not supposed to make a broom without straw. You know, he does, he's not Pharaoh. God says, here's a broom, and here's an hour. Now, please go sweep the floor. Okay? And so you need, and I need to start thinking about him this way, that if he says, go sweep, we need to think, okay, so there's a broom somewhere. Let me find the broom that he wants me to use. Because he, know, he knows what you need. And that's the rationale of sufficient resources, and here's the way you, you use it. If he's given me a mission to do, then I have enough of the, of the resource of time to do it. I have, a, I have plenty of time to do what he wants me to do. Aha! Now we realize that sometimes our little agendas that have us on a time crunch are really not part of his mission. <laughs> and that's a really helpful way God reminds us, well, that's not really what I'm doing with you in, in this life. So why are you over here in left field trying to catch a, a baseball when you're supposed to be playing a soccer game? Why are you doing something that I don't have you doing? is the idea. And that's why the summary of the scriptures is so helpful. Um, the problem of too much time is that it's the young person problem, that you think your life will go on forever and you can't imagine what 80 years is like. But as time goes on, this becomes less and less of a problem because we start realizing time is actually flying. So when we're bored and we think, well, I've got too much time in my hands, I need to do a little pastime, a little, little, little pastime, I'm just going to just fritter, just fritter, just fritter my time away. When that's what life is, okay, we have a problem. We do have a problem, and it's another mission problem, and it's a perspective issue. Again, rationale of sufficient resources. I've got an extra three hours. Oh, what am I going to do with myself? God gave you that three hours. There's a broom sitting there because he needs you. He wants you to do something with it. The resources are sufficient to the task. So, he gave you, uh, let me use an illustration, he gave you $5 to go to the market, pick up some eggs. And so you remember you've got the $5, but you forget about the eggs. And so you're like, oh, I've got $5. And you buy some, but you buy some baseball cards and, you know, and some bubble gum because they don't come together anymore. And, uh, and, and, and there you go, go back home, and your mom's like, where are the eggs? And you're like, the what? The eggs. Well, um... I bought baseball cards and bubble gum, if you're honest. And th- that's not why I gave you those resources. I gave you the $5 so that we could have a cake, and now there's no cake. And you pop your bubble gum, and, and your dad's like, no cake? What do you mean, no cake? Well, but Junior got his bubble gum. You see what I mean? We, we, we have the resource for a specific task. God tells us what the task is. 
And then we're not on mission. We don't care what he said. We ignore him because we're interested in our own pursuits and we make idols of things that, um, that, that should be part of the material of our obedience to God. So I've said, if I'm, on, if I'm bored, I'm not on mission. And this is, uh, again, I think the, the people that are more mature will struggle with not enough time. People that are more immature will struggle with too much time. And if you're like, well, hey, I'm one of those too much time people. You haven't figured out that life is short and that's a, you need to grow up a little bit. Because it is. It, it, it is shorter than you think. And um, the rapture is uh, any moment. And uh, today was the opportunity you had to serve him with. And look at you here. Congratulations. You're equipping to, to do tomorrow and to serve him with tomorrow and the next day. And it, you only get a day at a time. But that day is a precious, I consider it of an infinite value opportunity, resource to serve God with. Okay. In Ephesians chapter 5, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. I'm going to look at this in detail, but I want to illustrate this great need, our need for guidance. There's a great need. I want you to feel it, and I want you to share it, and I want you to, I want you to live your life. I want to live my life with a sense of this great need. So let's, let's illustrate it with some Algebra 1. There's an XY graph, <laughs> and um, I love doing this. I love thinking this way because when you do this, you're basically setting up a comparison. There's one thing that's on the bottom, on the, on the horizontal plane, and there's another idea that can be compared with that on the vertical. And so the way I'm setting this up is the bottom is your life. It's kind of like a timeline. It's your life. And the, um, the vertical is the quantity of your resources. Quantity sub R whatever quantity it is. Now, there are different resources that are measured in different things. How do you measure your time as a resource? Well, in minutes and seconds, and, you know. How do you measure money? Well, in dollars and cents in the United States. How do you measure, what, you know, your health? You can't really, you just know some days it's better than others, and uh, we're in sort of a decline as we get older, right? So that's the way to think about this little, little graph as we illustrate our need for guidance. Again, I'm, I'm seeking by this illustration to surface the, the desperate need that we have for God to talk to us, to give us his instructions on what he wants, that we would know the will of God. All right. And uh, hopefully you'll be able to share this with someone else. So there's a, there's, a, there's a trend line of your life plotted against a quantity. And what might that quantity be? Well, um, you could see as you uh, grow, as you get older, I'll, I'll highlight here, you start off at zero with this quantity and you increase over time and then we kind of have a tapering off. Um, but then you continue to extend, to, to increase in this. And of course, I've very carefully measured all these quantities out. And this is the resource of wisdom in your life. You start off with none and then the idea is that it increases as you go. Isn't that a good, that's, a, that's the way we want to be. You want your wisdom to increase as you go. And uh, let's don't think too hard about why that line stops. Um, because this is your life here on earth in time in this body. Now, past your physical death, wisdom will continue to increase. But for purposes, we're talking about while you're here on earth. Now, 
another quantity we could plot. What is that? That is not a, a, an EKG uh, measurement of your heartbeat or something, a, a readout of, of your heart. But I want you to notice that this resource starts again at zero when you begin your life. And then it st- sort of increases very slowly. And then you go into a negative. <laughs> at some point, say around 18, 19 years old in many cases. And then, but after that, there's, there's a drastic, dramatic increase in this resource that continues to increase generally if you're wise, if you're tracking with some wisdom. But then there's an immediate taper off of this, a shutdown, like a, like a, and, but then there's a, a leveling off. What is Rosalind describing here in this fun? It's a fun game to play what is the resource. What is this resource that we've colored green? Yeah, this is your money. Right down here, see, Junior's having lawn jobs, okay? But then, but then he, got, he went to college and got a loan, and he went into extreme debt. <laughs> this is your typical engineer. This is a, I did, I actually copied a, a graph that I made of a, of, a, of a successful engineer in America today, starting at birth, going for a little lawn jobs, going into debt to go to college, which I don't recommend, but uh, seems to be the way a lot of people end up having to do it. And I want you to notice a couple of things. Sometimes we get paid more than we're worth. Uh, his wisdom is not quite tracking with his, uh, with his dollars, but we're not measuring dollars against units per wisdom because that's impossible to do. I'm just saying that um, uh, sometimes God graces you out and you get paid more than you're worth. But um, I noticed that this is what, is what happened here where, he, where he, uh, there was a drastic drop, but then a taper off and went to a fixed situation. What is that called? He retired. I told you he's a successful engineer and he retired and he, w- he ended up making half what he was being paid at the end. Isn't that great? Meteoric rise of the successful engineer and then he, and then he retired. And again, we hit the, we hit the stop point. No more, no more dollars. Why are, you tra- why are we talk- talking about money? It's a resource. It's a resource. It is not your time and is not your value. It's just what you're paid. And it's a resource. And everybody knows it. And it's not an American thing to, to work. It's just that uh, we've been blessed so much here with the capability and opportunity to do so as we desire to do so here in this free, free nation. All right. Now we've got, um, this is kind of a bad news story. What's that? What is the purple trend line? Again, um, I kind of started at zero, but that's just because you just got started. You, you, you started somewhere. And um, somebody said it. There's your health. It's your health line. Why, why does it peak right after we get started after college and work? Or whatever, in training to, to work, because you need a skill to make a living. You're not just going to be paid for smiling, unless, you're, unless you've got a really skillful smile, and that's what people are paying for. But usually that's not the case. Um, you need to, uh, to get a skill and learn it. And, and, and then, but then right after this, this, this thing happens in wisdom, uh, we hit a peak. Some doctors, some scientists, researchers say your body starts to taper off at about 27, and then it's the downhill. And that's what I'm trying to illustrate. Um, so, so your health basically declines as your cells age and your body ages. And, and uh, uh, it's really a tragic, that's an awful thing. Let's get off of that topic as quickly as we can. But this is your health, your strength. You peak out at strength and in, and in terms of your vigor and your health, and it decreases. And isn't that tragic about how you could compare wisdom to strength? You know, your wisest moment is your weakest, <laughs> kind of, um, toward the end of life. And, um, 
as you encounter dying grace and you've trusted in Christ and you've prayed to God the Father in the name of Christ and you've taken in the Word of God and you've applied it in your life all your days of your life and you've developed this, this increasing skill of serving God, which is wisdom, with your life and, at, and on your last moment, as your body is finally dying, you are rejoicing in the prospect of meeting Jesus Christ face to face despite the pain, despite the, the horror, the finality of physical death. Um, the, re- the reality of everything you've lived your life toward has this beautiful victory lap of dying physically to be face-to-face with Jesus Christ. As Paul says, absent from the body and present with the Lord. And then the yellow trend line, which is the reason for our greatest, the greatest reason for our need. You start off in life with the most of this that you'll ever have, and at the end of your life, you have no more of it. And it's a one-to-one straight line. There's no curve to it. What is that a picture of? I saved it for the last because I think it's the most important. That's your time. That's your time. When your time is at its greatest point, your wisdom is at its lowest. When your wisdom is at its highest point, your time is at its lowest point. You have no more of it. And there's this finality. That's not the monolith from 2001, A Space Odyssey. That, that is uh, the, just the finality of this is the end of this frame of life, end of exercise. As we used to say in the Army Index, that your opportunity to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in a fallen, sinful, uh, earthly life that has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and that you're filled by the Spirit despite being corrupted by the sin nature, your opportunity to serve Him in suffering is over when you physically die. And all the question of what do I do with my resources is solved. No, no more questions. Now just the judgment seat of Christ. What is the wisest use of our resources? What is the wisest use of these many resources? I think that this is the biggest and most important thing I can show you based on Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. Where are you on this trend? I mean, we're all farther down it than we want to be, if you think about it, young people. <laughs> Time is short. You may be 20. Maybe you're not 20 yet. But when you get to be 20 or 30, you might think, well, not even half. I'm not even halfway yet. How many people die at 35? You don't know how much time you've got. But see, this little, uh, this little trend line of time, however much time God gave you, that's what you got. That's it. Okay? And this, this uh, your life thing line could be a 30-year timeline. It could be a 13-month timeline. We don't know. It's at least as long as you've been alive so far. <laughs> and everyone here loves you and wants it to be much longer and want to be with you and serve the Lord together with you. And, but um, I think this is very dramatic to think this way about the days are evil. They're evil because they're short. I put wisdom back up here because of this dramatic contrast. Is it true for you that uh, the older you get, the more you realize that you're wiser than the people that are younger than you? (laughs) Isn't that a a lot of times how we feel? 
most of my classmates uh, from the United States Military Academy have completed their battalion commands if they're going to have one. It's, a very, it's actually a really rare thing to be able to command a battalion in the Army. It's a, a rare treat. Um, and uh, kind of the, the way I was trained to think of it, uh, the pinnacle of a successful combat arms career, if you get a b- battalion, that is just the best. And then if you get, go further in command, you know, very, very small percentage of people can do that. That's your 05 command Navy people. Um, and um, time, is, time is really flying. It's really short. I remember as a young lieutenant, 23, 24 years old, dealing with 40-year-olds, men. We all had the same insignia on our uh, collar back then. Everybody had a tank with crossed sabers behind it because that's the symbol for armor. We'd all learn to drive a tank and shoot a tank and command a tank. And some of us had done it longer than others, but we were all part of the same thing. We were all the same DNA army-wise. But there was a difference between the 24-year-old lieutenant and the 40 or 35, 34, 35-year-old major, the 40-year-old colonel, lieutenant colonel. The difference was we did not know anything, and they were well aware of it. And they could smell those 35-year-old, we used to call them the iron majors, those 35-year-old field-grade officers could smell our ignorance, and we couldn't. And we, let me conjugate the verb properly, we stank (laughs) to them because of our ignorance. We just didn't know what we didn't know. It's the nature of being young. The Bible in the Proverbs calls it gullible or the petit, the gullible person who is a fool, not because he's willfully ignorant, not yet, but because he's just ignorant. He doesn't know. We don't know yet. And so look at this line. Wisdom is going to consistently increase. Now, this is a person that's getting it right, basically, who's not relearning the same lesson again and again through experience. You know, the slow tracker. This is the fast tracker that, that learns from observe, observing others, learns from the hardships in life, learns from, the, more importantly, the Word of God before God teaches you the hard way. Um, but notice that um, this is intended, this, this little graph here, is intended to show you the great need we have for guidance. The great need we have for guidance. As this, as this goes further down, as your time ticks away, it becomes more scarce to you. You have just as much at that point in your life as you would have ever had. It's just, you're that far along. And so there aren't that many minutes left, many opportunities left to serve God. And so how do I do it? What do I use it for? And so we all need to think this way when we're 13 or 33 or 53 or however old. We need to think this resource of time is so precious And we are so ignorant the younger we are, the more we need guidance. We need wisdom to be able to manage it properly. This this baby is very rich in time and very poor in wisdom. And this person here is much more wealthy in wisdom than in time. You see the problem? So when you're back here, we need guidance desperately. And I don't think we'll ever stop needing guidance. In fact, God has it, I think, perfectly timed and arranged for us that um, the test you're going to face where he's calling you to trust him is no less 
challenging to you as you have increased in strength than the test was when you were younger. The difference was that as that young lieutenant, as that fresh person that doesn't know much yet, the challenge is, is very uh, strong to you and weak to the, uh, to the Iron Major. He's like, why are you struggling with this? Why is this such a problem for you? And you, you want to say, sir, don't you remember 15 years ago? No, I don't remember 15 years ago. I'm getting some coffee. We've got work to do. Get back to work. Stop crying. <laughs> because we forget. The, by the way, uh, if you're younger and you're looking to grow up to be older and you want to be successful with younger people you're working with, try to remember they don't know what they smell like. They don't, remember, they don't know that they're ignorant and they need to be uh, given a little bit of patience and mentoring and be brought along so that they can understand. All right. Um, I think that this graph shows you that you and I are in a lifelong pickle about how we spend our lives. Life is measured in time. You're in a lifelong riddle and you need the wisdom that God alone can give you. Uh, and he does it through his word for how to manage your most precious, your scarcest resource. Ephesians 5, verse 15, Greek, therefore, very closely, look closely, very carefully, he says, look closely, that's the word blepo, which means to observe or to look at something. And then you could translate blepo, look closely, but then he says akribos, carefully, very carefully. And so it's a very strong way of saying, watch out. Watch closely, and it's in the present tense, which is uh, given as a general uh, attitude, a general approach of your life. Um, and, and this is just, as you go through life, you're going to have to watch out closely how you walk. So look closely with care is my, my translation there. How, post, how you walk. Present tense uh, from peripateo to walk. And so um, I believe this is one of Paul's key ways of talking about living your life. How are you living? Self-evaluation is called for in this verse. Look closely at your path. Look at how you're walking. Now this is 5.15 is real close to 5.18. Be filled by the Spirit. And this is the apostle who says walk by the Spirit in Galatians 5.16. Walk in dependence on the Holy Spirit. It's also chapter 5 verse 1 of Ephesians Um, be imitators of God as beloved children in verse 2 walk in love peripateo walk in love that's this word here p-e-r-i-p-a-t-e-o a description of your Christian life your walk therefore look closely with care how you walk not as unwise but as wise and you have to put a noun in there the way English the way we think so they put man in as a wise man in verse um, 15 in the New American Standard we could translate it people that's plural not as unwise ones or people, but as wise people. And this is, um, this is just your stock language for wisdom and foolishness in uh, Greek in the day of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Sophia, wisdom, is the Greek word for chokhmah, wisdom in Hebrew. Now, I believe that the idea of wisdom doesn't come from the classical writers of Greek, if you're interested, comes from the Old Testament because the Apostle Paul is an apostle of Jesus, the God of the Old Testament. And chokmah, as you know, is skill. It is skill. The wisdom we're talking about in the Bible is a certain capability that is learned and then practiced. And if you have the know-how, but you don't do it, not wise, right? You know how to 
do CPR, but you don't do the CPR and the person dies. That wasn't wise. Wisdom is the skill brought to bear on the need. And so what is biblical wisdom? I think in one summary statement, it is the skill to live our lives before God in his pleasure. And the language of Proverbs that teaches you wisdom, chokhmah, is the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord means he's God and I'm not. There's an infinite chasm of being between the creator, self-existent, eternal creator, and me, his creation, though I am made in his image. And so we're to be wise, not unwise. Asophia versus Sophia. Foolishness is the, is the lack of wisdom. Wisdom is the presence of the skill to live my life in the pleasure of God. In verse 16, he says, ex agorazomai. Ex agorazo is a fairly common word. I think it's, I think it's used, tw- I think this is the 26th time. When, anyway, it doesn't matter. It's, it, we know what it means. Agora is a place where the marketplace, the agora. Well, agorazo is to buy, to, to purchase uh, in, in a market set, setting. And ex-agorazo is to buy out of, to purchase out of in the etymology, in the origin of the word. And so I've translated it buying up. Buying up, that's uh, to buy out, to buy up. That's just the etymology, the origin of the word that he uses here. Your old Bible might say redeeming the time. In fact, in the New American Standard, it says in the margin, redeeming for this word, redeeming the time. Now, redeeming doesn't mean much in our day. It's not a word we use anymore. Nobody knows what this means, and that's tragic because it's a really important theological concept. Redemption is purchased. That's when you hear, I'm redeemed, I've been bought by the blood of Christ. That's what it means. And so this means to buy someone, to buy something out, and now we're redeeming the kairos, the time. And so um, this is a really helpful word, kairos, I've translated the time, ton kairon, the time. Um, the reason you translate to buy out as to make the most of is because it becomes an idiom that you're saying you're getting something, you're getting a good return on the expense that is this time. Not to switch around the way the purchase is working, but it just means when you get a good deal, it means that you got the most out of your dime, the most out of your dollar. And so when you redeem a dollar for something you're purchasing it with, I just got a car for a dollar. That was a good redemption. That was a good use of exchange, that dollar for a car. Unless that car carries some sort of fine or debt that you don't know about, that then you're in debt because you bought the car. But the point is that when you uh, get that dollar to make the absolute most it can make, That was a good redemption. That was a good transaction is the idea. So making the most of kairos, the time. The time, the chronos is time like you think of, like the succession of moments in life. But the moments themselves would be kairos. The moments within time, the events, the occasions, that's the way we had a great time. That that would be kairos. Uh, As we go through time, that would be chronos. The best we can do with the way these words are used in Greek. Chronos, chronometer, that's a word for time. Kairos is the other use of the word for time. And so it would be absolutely righteous to translate this by making the most of the occasion, of the event, of the opportunity. And so 
whatever the moment that you're in within Cairo, within Kronos, within the time that you've been given, whatever this occasion. See, um, do you understand that when you wake up in the morning, it's a, new, it's a new day. Do you get that? I mean, isn't that one of the most common, basic things in life? Have you ever known someone that can't start over the next day? That they just can't wake up and say, today's the day I'm going to serve the Lord with, and, and it's your day, God, and I'm trusting you. Have you ever known someone that wakes up, the first thing they do is start in on how bad everything is from yesterday and all the yesterdays before that strung together. Do you understand that tomorrow is a fresh start? You can't help it. God made you to turn it off and turn it back on when you get up the next day. And you know what? If you don't do that, if you try to play around and not rest like, you, like your body needs to, your body will either die or it will make you sleep. That's how, that's how you're made. You can't help but shut it down and turn it back on. Now, I struggle with that. I don't want to shut it down. Let's keep running. But, but we're made to do that. Now, that's a kairos. That's an opportunity when you start tomorrow opportunity right now is you're, you're here. And so I think Paul is referencing the moment that you're in. He, he brings you into wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Now's the time. Now is the time to make the most of what you've been given. Because the days are evil. This is a challenging phrase, poneros, and I take it to mean evil, and that's just, that's, that's the stock word for evil. Uh, means bad, and it can mean moral evil like Satan and the demons and sin and what we've done to, to oppose God's righteousness. Or it can mean hurricanes and, uh, and uh, the towers fell on the people and, and so forth. That is what philosophers call natural evil. That's a product of the moral evil that brought a curse. But it's not like you can't say, well, the hurricane came because we were bad. It's, the Bible says don't do that. The hurricane came because the earth is under a curse and all the human race uh, started that in Genesis when Adam fell. So the days are evil is a stock word for just bad. But the question we ask is why are the days evil? And I believe the answer to that question is because they're short. And I get that out of context. He says absolutely get the most, ring the most you can out of each opportunity. That's what he means by redeem the time. Ring everything you can out of the opportunity that you've been given because the days, like Kairos, the times, the events, the occasions, the days, and it's the word for day, Himera, these are evil. They're short. There's not enough of them. It's, it's, a, it's a short life. And so the, that's what he means by the days are evil. Now, it could mean the other alternative interpretation has meant um, the days are evil because we're in an angelic conflict and uh, we have a wicked world around us in general since Genesis 3 in the fall. Another interpretation is that the days are evil means that Paul is in a specifically evil time that, uh, that he's dealing with the Ephesians in their culture and they're dealing with a specific evil event. And I don't think that that works. I don't think that's what he's talking about because he's very general throughout this section of Ephesians. I think he's saying the occasions are few and far between or not as many as you'd like. And we all do this. It's very common for us in laziness to say, I'm going to take this occasion not to be on mission or do what I'm supposed to. Colossians 4 or 5 talks about this. But I'll do the next occasion. I'll do it tomorrow. As they say in, uh, down in Texas at the Mexican restaurant where I first read this, 
Uh, manana doesn't mean tomorrow. It means not today. Right? We're not going to take the occasion and seize the opportunity. This is carpe diem. This is to seize the occasion, but not for your own pleasure as an Epicurean, but for the glory of God and his mission. In verse 17, on account of this, that the days are evil, do not be unthinking. Afronis. I don't think foolish is a good translation here because we had a different word for foolish before, asophia. Now we've got afronos or afronis, not thinking, but rather understanding of what the will of the Lord is. Don't be unthinking, but be understanding is really what this means. The main verb here is to be. Genomai, one of the two key words in Koine Greek for to be. Ami and genomai. Often genomai means to become, but it doesn't have to mean to become, and half the time it doesn't. Um, oh, by the way, if you are unthinking, you need to become thinking. If you are foolish, you need to become not foolish. If you are not understanding, you need to become understanding. So it could, it could be used that way, but I think Paul is using it in a, in a general sense for the verb that we would translate it as to be. Rather, be, and it's a command, be understanding what the will of the Lord is. So we put it all together and it flows. Therefore, look closely with care how you walk and then not as unwise but as wise people by making the most of the time because the days are evil. And on account of this, do not be unthinking or ignorant but rather understanding of what the will of the Lord is. Now, he gives you the command to look closely how you walk and he gives you three ways, three different perspectives to, to look at how you walk. The first is your manner. Not as wise I'm sorry, not as unwise, but as wise. That's the manner of how you walk. The second is the means by making the most of the time. Think about in your walk how you're using the occasion of the life that you're in. That's, that, so it's, it goes from the means in terms of wisdom, from the manner in terms of, of a wise person to the means of that wisdom, which is making the most of the time. And the motivation why, the reason why is because, he says, the days are evil. Because of the shortness of the opportunities, the, 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 the scarcity of this resource of time. First of all, how will we know if God doesn't tell us? How will we know how to redeem the time if he doesn't tell us? I hope we've surfaced a need in terms of the shortness of time. And this is intended to remind you that the need can only be met to know what the will of God is by God giving us his wisdom. The Bible is God's method of giving us his wisdom. Part of the subtitle for tonight was the religious counterfeits. The religious counterfeits to the need we have for guidance. Mysticism would be one religious counterfeit Mysticism, point three, is, uh, is not going to give us the answers for how to redeem the time. What should we be doing? What is God's will for us that we would know it, that we would understand it? Mysticism doesn't give us the answers because it's not God's method. And what I mean by mysticism is that you come to know information apart from God's channel of giving you the information called special revelation. 
we have special revelation in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the prophets of the Old Testament and the prophets of the New Testament and in the apostles with their prophetic office as the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we have today in terms of special revelation is what the apostles and prophets have given us in the scriptures. They did not hold a Bible because they didn't have the whole thing together. They were generating it. God was generating it through them. But we have the Bible today as special revelation. Mysticism, if you find the answer, well, what is God's will for my life? And you mystically intuit the will of God. This is not what we're talking about. And I'm, not, and I'm not saying the Holy Spirit doesn't use His Word to guide you. I'm not saying that, uh, that, that the wisdom principle uh, is not connected to the personal moment-by-moment walk by the Spirit. I'm saying that emptying myself, my mind, to just see what the magic eight ball of my spirit says that I'm supposed to do, what you find generally is what you want that's what we do is we, we, we substitute what God says he wants in the Bible for what we feel like and we blame God on that. We say, well, I feel like this. It must be God. And in that case, that's the God of the stomach that is God. That is your God. You're, you're, you are your own God. So mysticism is not going to be the source of the answers if we're going to do, uh, do it God's way. Fourth, the question is, how do I redeem this time? And the answer is special revelation. So we have a need, I need to redeem the time, and I need to make the most of it, as we said, and I need to know what God's will is, and how I'm going to do that is through special revelation. There is general revelation, that means everybody knows there's a creator because we're here in creation. There is a reason for these things to exist that do exist, and the reason is because someone makes them exist. And so Paul says in Romans 1, everyone is without an excuse. But special revelation is when God speaks through a prophet or an apostle or directly through, through, from the fire uh, of the burning bush to Moses. Establishing Moses right that as, then as a prophet. When God directly reveals himself or through special revelation of prophecy. Fifth, keeping rules without personal rapport is not the right answer, but it's a common answer. See, this is the, this is the part of the, you got religious mysticism on the one hand, and religious legalism on the other hand, where I'm just, these are the rules, we do the rules. What, didn't you read the rules? I read the rules. Why didn't you do the rules? Why would I do the rules? Because we do the rules. Let's go over the rules again. Here are the rules. And, oh, so do things go better if you do the rules? Yeah, it's better if you go by the rules. Oh, well, that, would it be better for me? Yeah, you'll enjoy your life better if you do the rules. See, what's missing in all this is the lawgiver and our love for him. That's, that's the religious counterfeit in terms of um, legalism. And so you could take the word of God, special revelation, disconnect it from the God of the revelation, and then keep the rules and, you know, do your best to kind of make sure you keep them. And that would be Pharisaism, and you'd miss the coming of Christ to give you the kingdom. That's the message of Matthew in part. Sixth. God's special revelation, though, gives us plenty of rules and commands. We said we're not legalistic. We're not here to just keep rules. Didn't you read the rules? Yeah, yeah, I read the rules. God's Word gives us many, many rules and commands. I just read two of them in Ephesians 5. Be careful is the first one. It's in the imperative mood. Self-evaluate your walk, your course in life. How? By making the most of your time. 
And then the next command was don't be foolish, but be, I'm sorry, don't be unthinking or ignorant, but be understanding of what God's will is. So God's special revelation has plenty of rules and commands, and this is divine guidance. And if you load your conscience with the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit like we're doing in Ephesians 5, and so you come to value time as a scarce resource to serve God with, if you do that, then when there is an opportunity for you to make a choice about said time, your conscience will be sensitized in some measure, right, about what you're doing with your life, what you're doing with your time. And I think this is uh, the work of the Holy Spirit and the believer in this age, and it is in part what we mean by divine guidance. But the, the, the guidance begins with God said in the Bible. It really does. God said in the Bible. And um, how you live out what the Bible says is dependent, first of all, on what it says, and second of all, on who you are, and third, on your circumstances, what you find yourself. And nobody can be you, and nobody can be in your circumstance as you. But everybody has the Bible in common. And that's where we're unified in common ground and where we have to recognize you're walking in your own responsibility and I'm not in that responsibility. So it's, it's complicated. And we want to help people. The best way you and I help people with this is we say, well, this is what the text says. One possible application would be this. How you work it out in your life is there is a right or wrong, but God is the judge of how you work it out. So this is, this is what we mean by divine guidance as God's word says it and then my circumstance is and so I'm seeking God's face in prayer and seeking by his spirit to apply what he's taught me in the circumstance. Seventh, God's way emphasizes the importance of our motivation for obedience. And this is the part that, that abolishes religious legalism or a counterfeit cultic version of Christianity. Uh, the motivation for obedience is everything the way God said it. And we read about it, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Ultimate issue in your relationship with God is love him. That's the ultimate issue. It's not, did you do the things? It's, do you love him? And we can illustrate that, for example, in in the uh, end of the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And then Jesus commands him right on the spot. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, I love you. And then Jesus gives him a command. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, you know I love you. Then he gives him a command. It's, It's very clear that we have commands to follow, but the motivation which drives us is not fear that he's not satisfied with me. It's not fear that I'll lose something that, that, uh, that I can't lose because I have Christ. There is the loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, and it should motivate us. But, um, but that's really a secondary motivation in obedience to loving God who's already done everything for me, who, who didn't spare his own son but delivered him over for us all. How will he not with him freely give us all things? See, God's already loved us, so we need to love him back. That's what we do. We, we love because he first loved us. And so this is the ultimate destruction of legalism. If you think legalism means obedience or obeying the rules or paying attention to the commands of Scripture, then you are a, an antinomian reprobate. That's, that's all, the only way. If I think this way, that to obey commands is to be legalistic, then I think I am God and I'm a law to myself. It's insane. Of course, the God of creation tells us what he wants. And then he says, did you do it? (laughs) Right? But here's the difference between Christianity and religion. The reason we do it is because we love him. And here's the secret. Here is the secret. 
it's kind of, it, it is, it is self-beneficial to love God and obey him because his commands are issued from a perspective of loving you more than you can imagine. He wants better for, than you, better for you than you want for yourself. He says no because he loves you and he doesn't want you to suffer. And he says, do this even though it's hard because he loves you and he wants you to grow and he wants to capitalize you and bless you. And to do that, you're going to have to step up into his mission. Ninth, the topic of obedience for Christians is always filed under love. The topic of obedience is under I love God, therefore I obey. When you find yourself going through the rules and I just do what I'm told and you're not loving God by obeying him, you have lost the bead of the Christian way of life. And tenth, God's commands organize our lives and enable us to prioritize our scarce resources. I started tonight with Matthew 28 and the Great Commission because whatever you're doing with your life, whatever you're doing with the days that remain that God has given you, it needs to be organized by the command to make disciples. I don't mean everyone needs to go to seminary. I don't mean we turn church into a seminary. I mean that in your giftedness and your walk by the Spirit and your growth in the Word, you have a cut. You have a piece of this responsibility. And we as a body are being held accountable to God in doing it. And I can say in a moment of weakness, I need help with this, people. I need help. But actually, the Lord Jesus wants us to function as an integrated body that is on mission, that we know that's what we're doing. So that's what the resources are about, time, money, whatever it is. It's about making disciples. So the commands, like the big one Jesus gave to the apostles who became uh, our, uh, the foundation of, uh, Paul says in Ephesians, the foundation stones of the apostles for us to walk as believers in Christ because of what the apostles gave us by God's design. Um, The reason he gave this great command to establish the apostolic Christian faith is that the church is on mission and it is not to build buildings and it's not to take over countries for Jesus and it's not to wave flags of any sort and it, it really isn't that we take over all the political processes. These are, if the divine institutions and, and, and the, the character of God works its way out into uh, public policy, as it did in the founding of our country and the Constitution and so forth, I mean, you can see the obvious awesome benefits to that, but that's not our mission, okay? Actually, I think the Constitution of the United States really frees us, gives us a free hand to be on mission. But you can be on mission in, in a in a prison cell in, in Romania under the Soviets, like Richard Wormbrand. You can be beaten every day for 14 years for your faith in Christ and make disciples in prison in the break when you're not being beaten. You know, the, 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 the torturers have to take a break because that's hard work. And so in those times when they have to get a breather, get a glass of lemonade or something, you can be telling people about Christ. That's the story of the tortured for Christ, Richard Wormbrand, the pastor in Romania under the communists. And I think that when you organize your life according to God's commands so that you're prioritizing scarce resources, 
I think this is called stewardship. I think that's what being a householder, where the, the person that owns the house, the oikos, is the, the owner. But you're the oikonomos. You're the steward who operates those resources. And I don't think there's anything you and I have that isn't part of God's resources. He's, he's delegated to us to serve him with. And that's what we mean by stewardship. What about religious counterfeits? We said mysticism makes special revelation irrelevant. Mysticism, uh, why do you need the Bible? Why study? Why think about these things? Why meditate on them? If we're just going to, you know, intuit what God wants. Why bother? Right? Because, I mean, I don't have to be on mission if I just feel like I'm being told to, uh, you know, the Blues Brothers, we're on a mission from God. We're just going to get the band back together. The Bible doesn't say that. Is the band going to make disciples? No. We're just going to get the band back. That's what, that's what we're going to do. Well, you're just spinning your wheels. We're running in a hamster wheel instead of getting, uh, getting anywhere in this, plan, in this life. And legalism is the other religious counterfeit that ignores personal relationship motivation. And so I want to close tonight. I was going to hit you with a summary, but I think it's better that I close with an illustration. Theologians don't like, um, some theologians that are conservatives don't like what I'm about to talk about um, because they think it denies the, the sovereignty of God or his grace. For me to say that God has called you as his beloved child to enter into a project that he wants you to work on with him. But I'm sorry, that's what the scriptures say. Your father just as the Father with Jesus Christ, your Father in heaven with you has a project that he's been working on since his son was, in, was first incarnated. And that revelation of God the Father through the Son continues with us. It's his project. It's his deal. When my dad came up here in November of 2016, we got to, this is my last time I saw him. It was a great visit. And um, we're all going to have to go through this, this part of life of, of um, when you lose. If you live long enough, you lose your parents. It's just how it is. And it's hard, and um, it's harder for me than, uh, than it is for him. I guarantee you he's, he's in a great uh, situation right now. But um, last time I was with my dad, we got to, I was thinking about this today because I'm working on this place. Um, we worked on a, a portion of, of decking that was like a walkway. Uh, to go from one part of the backyard into the garage. And um, it wasn't a big job. It wasn't a big project. But as I think about it, uh, it was in November. And we worked on that for about, I don't know, five or six hours. And it was just a really fun time. It was probably the best time we had of doing a project. And I remember thinking then, and I thought today as I was looking at that space, that it's now time to stain it because it's been weathered enough. Um, I remember thinking, you know, when men get together... You know that common wisdom? When, when men get together, they need a project to work on. That's how men bond. The project is to get the, the little white ball in the little hole uh, 18 times uh, without losing your mind, I guess. You know, that's one of the projects. Um, but, but, also, but, but those same guys that do that will get together and uh, build something. And they'll enjoy it, and it'll be that work and that camaraderie of sharing the work and the toil and the craftsmanship and all that's involved. And, um, you know, the stereotypes. Men don't talk a lot to each other. Women talk a lot to each other and that kind of stuff. Well, 
part of that silence is, uh, in terms of men doing a project together, is um, just getting the job done. It's, we're, we, we built something. And see, we're not just describing how life kind of is. We're describing how we're made. God made us to be part of his project. Our Heavenly Father wants us to be engaging in his mission. And he's laid it out there. And it's the, it's, it's the elite gold package. This is the best life can possibly be. This is, if you want to be a high roller, like a really important person, have a life that really counts, then first of all, let's say who's most important and what they think. That'd be God. And the next thing is say, what has he told me he wants? That'd be beyond my mission. And so it's an awesome privilege to work in his project with him. Now, here's the thing about working with God. It's all his tools. It's his deadlines. It's his resources. It's, it's his objectives. He's the one who evaluates it and says, I like what we did here. You don't look at it and say, well, hey, you know, we pretty straight. He says, I like what I enabled you to do in this thing that we worked on together. It's all of him. It's all his grace, but you have to choose it. The key passage is Philippians 2, 12, and 13, that God's working in us both to want and to do what pleases him. And so that's the, that's the idea. Um, you and I have this beautiful privilege of making our lives matter by just choosing to listen to what God said and doing it in our love for him. So we have our need. We need to use this scarce resource well. Whatever time you have left, use it. Use the occasion. We have uh, the we have the need established. We have the special revelation that meets the need. God tells us exactly what his mission is. And then we have our motivation to obey his command to get on mission. And that love that we have for God is why we do it. When you do ministry as a Christian with people, it's easy to look at them and say, they're the reason I'm doing it. But you'll run out of gas real quick. God made it that way. You pull the plug. Because they're not worth it and you're not worth it. And you don't have the strength and I just can't and I just can't do this anymore. And just, it's not, we're not getting anywhere. And all those defeaters that stop us from being on mission. But when you go back and say, why am I even doing this in the first place? I love God because he loved me first and he did all this for me. So I'm going to respond to that grace and love. And therefore, I'm going to show my love by obeying him now. Okay, I can... Maybe I need to take a break from said uh, troubling situation, but I'm going to rest and I'm going to refit with the Lord and I'm going to go right back at it for Him. And that's your motivation. So we've conquered all the problems of time and tonight we've looked at uh, a great need that we have to be on mission. And then uh, from, from here on, we're going to dig into the mission-focused passages that the Lord Jesus has given us. We're going to examine the Great Commission in in Matthew 28. We're going to look in Acts chapter 1 and elsewhere as we uh, continue and eventually we'll conclude on mission. Heavenly Father, how we love you for making us and saving us and giving us what you want us to do. You've clearly communicated to us what our life is for. And you've made us so very aware as our, t- as our life continues how short it is. Pray for everyone here, all our loved ones, all of our church family, that we would make the most of the occasion, that we would redeem the time because the days are evil. They're passing so quickly. 
But Father, you can make them count. You can make them count eternally. And we want to look at life this way on mission. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.